Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. We're going to start with something quite controversial. And I'm going to want to take your calls on this because I want to know how you feel about mushroom dispensaries. It wasn't that long ago that we were talking about cannabis dispensaries. Everybody up in arm about the pot shops that were popping up all over town, illegal dispensaries, and then ultimately legalized and and had to have clouded windows. No clouded windows anymore. Uh, It was not Armageddon when cannabis uh, was legalized fully. So our first guest today is an activist who's consistently been at the forefront of, of championing and being vocal about the need for drug policy reform in Canada. He's an author. He's a businessman. Dana Larson has huge ideas and has a mind to remove the stigma from those who wish to use drugs, choose to. It's proven to be an uphill battle for Dana. Sometimes he has had to pull out a bullhorn here and there. Uh, there was a time, though, as I mentioned, that some thought that, that legal pot was a recipe for disaster. And it's proven not to be that. I think that's fair to say. Now society is, is very much grappling with psilocybin, magic mushrooms, and the dispensaries, the unregulated shops, the unlicensed shops that have been popping up all over BC. So let's find out the whys and the hows of this really odd process of these storefronts selling illegal substances first and then finding a way to being licensed and then regulated and maybe even legalized. Uh, let's welcome Dana Larson to the show. Hello there. Hey, good morning. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to chat with you once again. It was good to have a conversation with you, Dana. Let's talk about this thread that you posted on Twitter um, that really prompted uh, us to reach out. I thought, this is fascinating, the way you laid out. It's very pragmatic. It's not as, um, come on now, as that sometimes can be the case when the conversation uh, was bubbling up, certainly around cannabis. Um, There are certainly people who disagree that drugs of any kind should be sold in storefronts. and then there are, are others who believe that it's time for us to grow up. Can you walk us through your thread? Well, sure. You know, we have three uh, mushroom dispensaries in Vancouver, and the oldest one's been open for over three years. And on November 1st, we got raided by the Vancouver police at all three of our locations and also at our uh, cannabis dispensary location as well. And um, it was very surprising because we've had police come into our location regularly over the, since we opened over three years ago. Uh, we have video cameras outside that capture footage on the street. Sometimes they come in and ask us to, if they can share our video footage. Never once have they ever commented, hey, you guys are selling illegal mushrooms here. We're going to come in and arrest you for that. And uh, so it's very surprising after three years to have this massive raid, probably cost the VPD over $150,000 to hit all our storefronts. And of course, we reopen again the next day. And of course, there's over a dozen other can- uh, mushroom dispensaries in the city operating that are not getting raided. And so it's kind of odd to see us being the one that gets targeted, especially since we also operate a program called Get Your Drugs Tested, which is where all the money from our cannabis and mushroom shops go. And we're the biggest and free uh, free uh, street drug analysis center in the world. And we're actually opening our second location just a few days uh, uh, at uh, uh, 245 West Broadway. And we've got a hearing coming up. We've got business licenses for our locations. We got business licenses before we opened as a retail outlet. And now the city is trying to take away our business licenses. There's actually going to be a hearing uh, on Wednesday at City Hall in the morning about our license, specifically at our location at 247 West Broadway. 
Now, when I look at this and I look back at how we dealt with cannabis dispensaries in the city over the years, uh, the city kind of ignored cannabis dispensaries when they first opened until there was over 100 in the city. And then our previous city councillor was like, well, we got to do something about this. So they started putting in regulations and writing bylaws and licensing these shops long before legalization happened as a means of getting control over the cannabis dispensary movement in the city. And I'm seeing deja vu here again. It's a very similar situation. And the city can go to war with us and launch raids and things like that. But we know that doesn't really work and that we're going to reopen again anyways. Not just me, but all the other shops in the city. And so hope that our city councillor will will move away from raids and move towards licensing and regulation, which what worked for cannabis and which should be the same strategy we're using now for mushroom shops. So Dana, I want to. There's a lot to unpack there, and thank you for uh, laying out your thread. That is, but that is very concise to what you had put out there, which um, a number of things I'd like to talk through with you. First and foremost, for people who are anti-drug, uh, do not believe <clears throat> that there is space for this. I think it's worthy pointing out what you said in there that you are actually putting the funds from your uh, mushroom and and cannabis dispensaries here to, to towards the free testing of street drugs, trying to do um, something about the tainted drug supply that is killing thousands of Canadians yearly. What is it? 2000 Canadians uh, more than uh, in 2023 alone. Um, uh, from the tainted drug supply here it's it's there's something to be said for you're trying to make uh, trying to save lives within this and then we can talk also about how the fear around cannabis legalization was very real and how we've seen people use uh, cannabis thc or cbd uh, in place of some drugs that could be highly addictive or or for pain relief in a in a quote-unquote more natural natural way or however uh, people want to hear it. And and psilocybin falls into that category. It is being used in clinical ways under very careful circumstance. So as we talk through all of these things, I also want to point to our listener who right now is yelling at the radio saying, but they're, it's going to be sold to children. It's going, how, how do you how do you explain or put minds at ease that what we did see happen over a very long period of time with cannabis um, now coming to the psilocybin discussion. Can you throw down some truths about psilocybin? Well, we don't sell the minors, first of all. We don't let anybody into our shop unless they're over 19. And also, every, anybody who wants to purchase psychedelics from us has to sign a form that they're going to be a responsible user. They're not going to drive or swim or climb or let children access it or anything like that. So we do everything we can to make sure that people who purchase from us are going to use these products in a responsible and safe manner. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of medicinal and psychological benefits to using uh, mushrooms and other psychedelics as well. And part of that is helping people deal with other types of drug addictions and problematic drug use. And people use these things, just like cannabis, for all kinds of reasons. Some are using these substances to deal with uh, psychological issues and medicinal reasons. Others are just looking for a pleasant weekend camping and taking some mushrooms or something like that. And all of those things, of course, I believe should be allowed and should be uh, uh, accepted. And certainly by any measure, uh, psychedelics and mushrooms are far less harmful than alcohol or other things that are commonly sold. And, you know, the reality is that these kind of dispensaries have been opening in the city for the last three years. Uh, there's been no action from the police or anybody to try to come and stop them or prioritize them. And the police would normally say it's not really a big issue and we're going to let the city hall bureaucracy deal with these things. And so it's strange to see this sudden turnaround and a, a huge raid like this happen. 
but if you want to get control over these kind of things, the solution is not raids and, and prohibition. It's licensing and regulation and, and putting rules in place. Uh, that's how you get control. If there's concerns about things being sold in certain places or access to miners, the city can put in their bylaws. You've got, you want to get a license? Don't sell the miners and make sure you're located in a certain area and you can have to frost right. your windows or not frost your windows or whatever kind of rules they want to put in place. But uh, it really reminds me of cannabis because in the early days, in the late 1990s, there was a lot of uh, court decisions around medicinal cannabis use. The society was coming to understand that medicinal marijuana was very beneficial for a lot of people. And that people, the many people needed illegal access to to a- access this product, and it's very much the same now with, with psilocybin and psychedelics. We're seeing a lot of research and court decisions and arguments around this that are moving the dial and understanding that there's a lot of benefits to having these substances available, and many Canadians really benefit from from access. We're chatting with Dana Larson. He is an activist. He's an author. He's a businessman. He is the founder of Medicinal Mushroom Dispensary. And we're talking today about a special meeting at Vancouver City Hall on Wednesday morning about these medicinal mushroom dispensaries that have popped up across the city, some being raided. Uh, Dana, it seems like just yours are being raided right now, right? Yeah, it's very surprising that they've chosen to target our places. I, I don't really understand the logic behind that. Yeah, it's interesting. I would, I would, I would be interesting to know why, as you said, because one of your shops has been open for three years and police have come and gone. It's not like it's a surprise. Um, wanting to open up the phones on the idea of these dispensaries. Do they bother you? Is it long overdue? What side of the fence do you land on? Or are you somewhere in the middle like me? I, I, I look at them very much like I look at most places. I can frequent them if I choose to or pass them by if I don't. Seems kind of Canadian to do that. 604-280-9898 is the number. Star 9898 is a free call on your cell. Because in that, either I go to it or I walk by it. Either way, it's not a black market. It's not gangs tainting drugs and selling them, you know, nearby schools. There's that's worse in my opinion. 604-280-9898, star 9898. If you'd like to chime in here, we start with Tony in Abbotsford. Welcome, Tony. Hi there. Um, I want to have a comment and then a question if I may. Um, first of all, my comment is I don't, uh, really think you can compare pot and acid and say, uh, you know, I'm having a, a happy reminiscence of the weed days and this is just something else. It's not just something else. Second, my question is, um, Maybe you have reminiscence because of the uh, the money flow, but is it a profitable business what you're doing with the mushrooms? Well, well, yeah, we're run by a nonprofit society, but definitely we 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 sell things for more than we we pay for them, and we use our profits to fund the Get Your Drugs Tested program uh, in Vancouver, which is uh, doing about two thirds of all drug analysis in the in the city, and I think it's a very valuable public service that I'm quite proud we're able to offer making any money personally from this i get a salary yeah oh and you, you so that is a so you are gaining financially from what you're doing so this is like advertising it's a business and we probably we have we employ 30 people and they all they all get a wage as working at our at our business and i'm one of those people that gets a wage but we really direct our money towards uh, helping our community through the get your drugs test tested program that's the where the majority of our money goes it is like being, uh, you know, exposed again for your salary, I guess. I'm not sure what you're asking me, but if you want me to work for free, I don't do that. But uh, this is no. a business and it's a nonprofit society and we 
are like any others. And as far as yeah. I know, the other mushroom dispensaries in the city are, are making a profit as well. That's how a business works. Uh, so I'm not sure what your what your you, question you should, is. You shouldn't have to defend that, Dana. You shouldn't have to defend. You're looking you're looking for business licenses to run a business, and I think that people get really upset about this. That the drawing a straight line to from acid to mushrooms and and you know pot's okay because we remember pot, but mushrooms. He, Tony called them called it acid. Um, you know, I I harken back. I'm not a mushroom taker. I'm not a drug user per se. I've, I've smoked pot in my life. I've, you know, but when I look back, I remember as a kid watching uh, older teenagers out in fields with, you know, flared jeans soaked up to the middle of their calf because they were searching through the grass for magic mushrooms. So, I mean, there are memories of that, you know, here in the lower mainland, just being a thing. Let's go to Julia and Cloverdale. Julia, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks. So my concern is more so about, you know, young adults who are buying for siblings or cousins or friends who are underage. Um, I have a niece who, you know, she's 19 years old and, you know, goes to the dispensary for herself, but then she buys for her 16-year-old sister as well. So I think that these young kids do have a way to access it. You know, I don't care, you know, what adults do, you know, with their leisure time yeah. is, you know, their thing. But I think that, you know, kids are going to get access to, you know, these drugs, which in my opinion is um, a worse thing for them to get have than getting stoned on marijuana. I would take your point, Julia, as the mother of a newly minted 16-year-old. I feel your fear. I also feel like my son could access uh, illegal black market drugs even easier than trying to get past a dispensary that would say, you know, you got to be 19 to get in here. Your thoughts on that, Dana? Well, we make everybody who comes in sign a form and they're actually not going to do that exact thing. And certainly we can't always control what someone does with their products when they leave the shop, but uh, we don't like people re supplying to minors. We try to eliminate that. Uh, and on the other hand, you know, mushrooms are very safe, like cannabis. They have psychological effects, but you're not going to overdose or die from taking too many mushrooms or anything like that. Uh, but, of course, we encourage responsible use and not, not provide them to minors, and that's not what, what we're about. And we do everything we can to try to stop that. Dana, thanks for this. I didn't know that about uh, mushrooms. I didn't know that you could not overdose on them. Um, that, that's and fascinating. I'll, I'll I appreciate add a lot. Oh. A lot of our clients are microdosing as well, where they're taking yeah. very, very small doses on every day for non-psychological purposes. I kind of—it's a metaphor, kind of like microdosing is sort of like the CBD of mushrooms, where you're not yeah. really looking for a cycle, like a profound effect, but you still get uh, great uh, benefits as well. I have a couple of friends who have done that uh, and and documented that people that you would not look at and think mm, you're probably using mushrooms. They're using it to in place of a uh, an antidepressant of some sort, microdosing is is a phenomenon uh, i have a feeling we're going to be hearing more from you I, i'd love to check back i will follow along on your twitter dana to see what happens this week in city hall thanks for taking some time out for us and if people want to find out more they can visit us at mushroomdispensary.com and get your drugs tested.com Jody Vance in for Mike Smith. And uh, prior to the break, when we were talking to Bill Thielman, we were discussing how there was some serious pushback on some of the, well, the moves being made to address the housing affordability crisis we have here in British Columbia and really across 
the country. You heard a, a promo for Jazz Joe Hall there talking about David Eby's transformative housing uh, plan that has been, uh, some would say, pushed through on municipalities, that it will, will change how zoning processes have happened traditionally in the urgent need to find places for people to live, whether it's rentals or or affordable uh, homes to buy, which is likely an oxymoron in Metro Vancouver these days. Um, talking real estate, talking about how, you know, we're, we're taxed, we're taxed, we're taxed, speculation tax, but only some places and spaces. It's been expanded. Where and what are the boundaries? What does it look like? What does it mean to you? How about short-term rentals and the impact of Airbnb and Verbo and, and, you know, we need hotel rooms, but should we should we first make sure that we have places and spaces for people to live and work? These are all conversations I love to have with our next guest. She's a regular on the Jazz Joe Hall Show. You hear her on The Wrap. She's a real estate agent in South Surrey, White Rock. She is my good friend, Sarah Daniels. Hi, Sarah. Oh, my God. I, where do we start? I mean, that, I know, that's, right? a, that's a day-long conversation. <laughs> Whack-a-mole real yeah, estate exactly. style with Sarah Daniels. Where should we start? Let's start about the transform transformative housing that the NDP have, have put forward. And with with you know the caveat of upfront saying, hey guys, it's been six months, you haven't done significantly more. We're gonna be we're gonna be coming and and, and redirecting you in, in municipalities. From a realtor's perspective, what does that do for for you, your job, and and for those who are looking to to move? My job, you know, the in, interestingly, it, for for me personally, you know, as a realtor, does it have not uh, some effect? Absolutely, because I'll be talking to clients that might be in an area that is being, you know, sort of targeted for redevelopment, and you know, that actually increases the value of their property if they're in a a neighborhood of large homes, and and a municipality is looking to rezone, etc. That means that those homes individually are, you know, not going to be worth much more, but as a group, as an assembly, they will be, right? So, you know, right. if you're looking to assemble to build townhouses and condos, so it actually does push up their their value. Um, but on on the on the greater scheme of things, it really depends on where we're talking about. So, for instance, like downtown Vancouver, or at least Vancouver West Side, Vancouver East Side. We're talking about densification. You and I were talking about this before, about the Broadway line and the amount of densification that is planned along the Broadway line. That's all fine and dandy, but doing that means that we're going to be losing a lot of uh, housing that is above retail and commercial, like smaller buildings, et cetera, and with the idea of building you know, high rises or mid rises. So what happens to those people that were in those smaller units above retail or commercial in the interim? A. B, right. um, what kind of um, supports are we going to have for these buildings? This means money being spent on infrastructure, et cetera. So just saying and, you know, waving a magic wand and saying, densify, we give you permission. And in fact, we are going to shove it through. Every municipality is going to have to figure out how are we going to pay for the, the infrastructure? Where are the schools going to come from? If we're all of a sudden turning a neighborhood from a single family home neighborhood, and you'll find a lot of these in areas of Langley and Surrey, where you've got eight, 10, 12,000 square foot lots, and you're going to suddenly change that into instead of having um, a, a block which has 15 or 20 houses into a mid rise or townhouses, which is going to double, triple, quadruple the amount of people. First of all, we're talking about you know sewage, water, et cetera, et cetera, so on. Then we're talking about schools, parks, 
parking for cars. We're throwing a lot at the municipalities. And by the way, I was thinking about this before I came on. As we're looking outside and it's pouring with rain today, I mean, we we haven't even thought about our water needs in the next 20 years. We're still relying on the Capilano Reservoir, and that's not enough. So there's, you know, it's it's all fine and dandy to say this is what we need, but who's going to pay for it? It's going to take multiple levels of government, as I've said many times before, and I don't care what side of the aisle you are on. It's going to take tax dollars. So, I mean, I see like campaign ads airing right now, but we're going to, you know, make sure that every Canadian can buy a house. If there's no houses to buy, that's going to be difficult. Right? That's right. Yeah. So, and that brings us back to the beginning of this circle, right? All of right. those other things are true, but also what is true is there are no places for people to live. There are no places. So where do you begin? Well, and that's the thing is we've seen the interest rates go up, obviously, and that puts a quell, like that quells the market, certainly for developers. So, you know, developers, you know, they are, they build when the, when the time is right kind of thing. And now with interest rates high, um, the time for them, for a lot of them is not right. There, some are completing projects that were started a couple of years ago. There's going to be issues with some people being able to close on those properties because what they qualified for two years ago they no longer qualify because of the rise in interest rates. So there's going to be some problems in the next year or so for people trying to close on that one or two bedroom condo that they bought on pre-sale that they are no longer qualified to purchase. So there's going to be issues there. But we're also, you know, we're a country of immigrants. And I, I hate it when people say, oh, you know, immigrants are the problem here. They are not the problem here. We need immigration. In fact, everybody that is listening, save for indigenous peoples, are immigrants to this country. So we need immigration, but we also cannot just say to the general public or to the people at large, it's it's our, like, it's it's just the regular homeowner's duty to you know, add a suite or do whatever we've, it's got, it takes three levels of government. We need to get back to an idea of creating affordable, rentable housing that is safe and secure. I mean, I live near a, a, uh, like a public co-op, um, that has been in my neighborhood for, oh gosh, since I've been down here almost 27, 28 years. And, and you, you know, instead of having sort of like areas where you're almost segregating them, like, oh, there's the rental properties, it has to be dispersed through the communities. I mean, there's nothing wrong with renting, obviously, right? But people get, no. you know, freaked out about, oh, public housing and what that means. What it means is there's a lot of people in, you know, uh, jobs that we need, like bus drivers, you know, whatever, doesn't matter who they are, that are Nurses. not in a position... Nurses, they're not in a position to purchase something and they exactly that need that need a good rental. So we we need as we need to sort of pull our heads out of our you know what and and sort of realize that this is a problem that is only going to get worse as we go on and kicking it down the line and not addressing it and all the needs that come along with it. Like I said, you know, infrastructure, all that kind of schools. If we, if we yeah, don't look at Surrey, look these- at Surrey right now, we're, we're going to, we're going to have actually in the next segment at 11 AM, we're going to have the first VP Carol Gordon of the BCTF on with us to talk about the need for more schools in Surrey, but hello, it's similar to the housing issue. This is why I draw the parallel more schools in Surrey, build the schools. Hello, there's already a teacher shortage. How are you going to put yeah. the teachers in the school today? Like, so there's a big, long set of dominoes to fall here. I want to talk, uh-huh. you, you were talking about upzoning and, and, and how, you know, land assembly and there, 
there are people that push back on the fact, you know, look at the Broadway subway line and, mm-hmm. and, and how around the subway line uh, stations, there are mm-hmm. going to be these towers. That's part of the, the mm-hmm. transformative housing, right? It's like 20 stories. We're going, we're going tall at, at these hubs. And then there are people that are, you know, putting their, they're up in arms. That's going to really impact the affordability around these areas because it does make them more accessible, more um, um, lucrative, frankly. And if you can now take your single family dwelling and turn it into a sixplex, well, now each of that that $2.25 million property will be split into six, which will probably go for a million dollars each. Or in Shaughnessy, we should be changing, revamping those single family homes in Shaughnessy to have multiplexes. Do you think they're going to be affordable in Shaughnessy? No. No. No, I mean, and that's no. the thing is that's why, and that's why a lot of people have moved to the suburbs, right, for that affordability. And you know, Langley. I mean, you've certainly seen on the news recently, uh, you know, representatives in Langley kind of pushing back, saying like, we 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 would love to be able to densify to a certain extent. We don't have the infrastructure. We don't have the money. I mean, this is the thing is, it's we are what we're doing right now is trying to play a game of catch up. But it is like basically instead of like a slow, steady stream, we have turned on. We have opened up a fire hydrant and we're just shooting it everywhere and going like okay like we got to deal with this and it's it's very hard for municipalities i mean and how does i mean honestly we all we all you know you know hate our you know quote quote unquote dislike our local reps and all that kind of stuff it's it's impossible to get elected by saying we need to do something about this and it might it might incorporate higher taxes it might incorporate this that and the next thing Nobody wants to hear that. So what we end up doing is kicking the the ball down the the road. And, you know, I keep on hearing stories. You know, we all hear stories on the news. I I don't want to leave my children with this debt or like we need to do this for a country, et cetera. We're leaving them with huge problems for the like this is why kids aren't moving out of their parents' homes. There's nowhere to go and they can't afford it. So, you know, these are the issues. And we used to have affordable rentals. Back in yep. back in the day, Sarah, back in the day, we used to have hey, places even, where even ten years you could ago, I move mean, into even ten yeah. years ago. I mean, I lived in Toronto. I rented a house in a really nice neighborhood. I paid twenty six hundred dollars a month. I know that, and it was a little house, little bungalow, um, in a great neighborhood. I know that same house right now is renting for forty five hundred dollars a month. Seven years later, wow. Jody Vance in for Mike Smith alongside my good friend Sarah Daniels. She's a real estate agent in South Surrey, White Rock. She's an author and a broadcaster. You hear her on the Jazz Joe Hall Show on Fridays in the Wrap. And Sarah, without even throwing out the phone number, we've got a caller. I want to slide in oh. here. Rick in Port Moody, welcome to the show. Oh, hey, Jody. Thanks for uh, taking my call. You know what really baffles the heck out of me in all of this stuff is um, how they can take the philosophy that they're that the governments are going with and throw, keep throwing the word affordability in, into the comment. Uh, you know what? Sarah will testify to this. The building cost now of any house is you're looking between 300 to $500 a square foot. So to build a just a common 2,000 square foot house, which is nothing extravagant, you're looking at a million dollars just to build the product. It's still not affordable. What the government and we really need to start focusing on is affordability, and that means starting to focus on micro units, micro suites, suites that are 300 square feet, and start getting people into that so that it's affordable at $400,000, and people that make $60,000 a year can actually buy into something, learn to live in that stage, and then keep stepping up in, into different increments as, as they move in and eventually get into the house. But what they're doing right now is just a total waste of time because the houses are still not going to be affordable for the people once they're built. 
Thank you so much, Thank Rick and Port Moody, Sarah. What's that? Oh, did you want to comment on oh, yeah, what Rick I, was I saying think, there? I, I, I think the, the yeah, the, 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 the cost of building may not be quite that expensive. I mean, it depends on what you're looking at. But the point is actually taken because the thing is we, we keep on expecting to see these micro units, et cetera, or smaller units in the city. And that's generally the thing. But we can, you know, we, we should be moving forward to seeing that kind of units everywhere. Not everybody wants to live in downtown Vancouver, right? Not, But the thing is no. what the other issue for people is these days is that the condos that we do see built are one and two bedroom condos tops. And we, we don't see things that are suitable for a family of four. Right. We've got I mean, yeah. you know, in, in a perfect world, we don't need to have a 2000 square foot home. Most families can live in like a thousand to twelve hundred square feet if it's properly laid out. But we're just not seeing those things being built. And therein lies the issue. Right. I mean, it's it's very right. hard to find something affordable for a family of four. Totally, we do. I want to shift to the speculation tax expansion and your take on that. I know you have opinions. Oh, well, I mean, first of all, right now, they, they have expanded the speculation and vacancy tax um, to areas of Kamloops, Parksville, you know, et cetera, et cetera, so on. And it will come in on January 2025. They made that announcement, what, a week and a half ago? They still, And I literally went on the map. I've got friends that have got properties that have been in their families for quite a while that are in like the Kamloops Regional District and, and other like on Parksville, Qualicum area. They haven't even updated the maps on on the, for the province yet. So, I mean, if, if you can make these grand announcements, but you can't announce, you can't actually update the maps so people that live in those areas actually know if they've been affected, we've got a problem right there. But again, you know, but it's stress. to me, it's not it's not up to the general public to create housing. I mean, if right. they start spreading this into the Gulf Islands, I mean, there's lots of people that that still have old family cottages, et cetera, on Gulf Islands. If all of a sudden the Gulf Islands have, you know, that becomes falls under the purview of you've got to rent this property out because it's not lived in 12 months of the year. Well, what if it's not a winterized cottage? What if it's only a, mm -hmm. a dug well that is for the summer? Um, you know, what right. like, are we, the poor owners of these properties are going to be thinking, what do I do? Do I like literally burn it down? And then, you know, you, what do you do? You, do you get a trailer? I mean, I, I, I don't even know if they've thought this through, but again, it is turning around and pushing the onus on individuals. And, you know, the, the fact that, I mean, we're relying on people with maybe like a second home in an area that now is becoming a little bit more urban, but used to be more rural as, as buttressing our housing market. I mean, there's a lot of people that maybe don't even want to live there in the first place full, full time year round. This is not the way to go about it. It takes three levels of government to sort this out. First thing they should have done is, you know, 10, 12, 15 years ago when it became an issue is addressed Airbnb, Airbnb immediately. Airbnb has taken so many properties off the market that could be part of our rental pool. It's a huge problem. Yeah. And we're just now starting to talk about it. Yeah. And other jurisdictions have, have managed to cap that and, and yeah. manage it in ways that, that haven't that it's just been the horses running free here. But at the Look, same time, the argument for people is we don't have the, the hotel stocks that we once did. So then we go down the tourism ramp. Like you said, we could talk about this all day. And, yeah. and in fact, we have like 45 seconds left in this segment. Sarah, well, and, and again, you know, like, like I said, I mean, for, for people that lives, live in condos and they've got like Airbnb surrounding them, they're not thrilled with mm -hmm. Airbnb either. I mean, 
this yeah. is something that that I mean, and you know, they're they're going to start commissions and all this kind of stuff. But people need to think seriously about what the effects are of not doing something now and not doing something properly now. That's the issue. Yeah. Short-term pain, long-term gain across the board. Exactly. I'd like to see on this on this housing initiative, this transformative housing, I'd like it to be that that some of the permitting and the fees associated with building are are suspended. Uh, there there's money being made here that that could save hey, taxpayers. Property transfer tax is a is a oh, gold on, mine yeah. for the province. Yeah. Where's that money really going? Is. Into general revenue? Yeah, no. Not not no. a good thing. Sarah Daniels, as always, where do people find you? Sarah Daniels .ca. Sarah Daniels, Sarah with an H, Sarah Daniels.ca. Vance in for Mike Smith. I'm not sure if you're a, a, a parent. Uh, if you are, you just got the midterm report card. Maybe you did the parent-teacher interviews. Oh, those are so fun, aren't they? I have a newly minted 16-year-old, so I'm all about it and interested in the happenings in other jurisdictions outside of where my son happens to go to school. Uh, he does not go and go to school in Surrey. I cannot imagine the stress associated with being a parent in Surrey right now, uh, hearing right here on CKNW uh, over the last couple of weeks, stories of living right across the street from a school, absolutely being in the catchment area. And sorry, there's no room there. Uh, just the, 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 and the creative ideas of perhaps kids going to school in the evening or splitting the day or going to school all summer. How does that happen with a teacher shortage? How does that, how does that land with teachers who are already up to their eyeballs and, and trying to make do with, with frankly less? Uh, how about the protests that are going on with SOGI123? What is SOGI123? Do you really know what it's about? There, there needs to be some myth busting there as well. Uh, for all of these reasons, we're really thrilled to have a midterm report from the teachers, compliments of BC Teachers Federation First Vice President, joining me on the line, Carol Gordon. Carol, thanks for being here. Thanks so much, uh, Jody, for the invitation. Let's start with Surrey and, and the stress that is on teachers, students, and parents, frankly, in Surrey as it grows more quickly then schools can keep up. Yeah, we know areas like Surrey are rapidly uh, growing. Um, it's, it's happening in other places in the province too, but Surrey is, is such an extreme um, yeah. growth. And we really do need government to, to, to plan ahead and make sure there are enough schools and that when those schools are built, they're appropriately sized for the community that they're in and can accommodate the growth that's anticipated to happen. Um, those spaces are so important for kids to learn in, uh, for kids mm -hmm. to teach in, and those creative solutions that you talked about, you know, just add a, uh, another layer of complexity to the, I think, some of the mental health concerns that we've seen coming out of COVID and the workload and the burnout that are hap that's happening, not just with teachers, but with families and kids as well. And they need that time away from school um, in the evenings to connect with family and friends. And so it really is about the spaces and government uh, making those plans to address that shortage. Full disclosure, my dad was a lifelong uh, school teacher. He was the head of the PE department at Britannia for 30 plus years. One of my very best girlfriends is um, a teacher in elementary school here in uh, Vancouver. Um, so I do, I, I have a special place in my heart for teachers. So I want to just with gratitude, thank collectively you and all the teachers uh, in BC. What is 
what is the the feeling now midterm 2023 2024 as you mentioned the stresses of covid things have shifted how are teachers feeling today versus a year ago versus two or three years ago well we did have a, a recent survey this last year and it really did show that 80 percent of teachers are feeling the impacts of the teacher shortage and um and about 60 percent of those are feeling like they they can't meet the needs of their students uh, there, there's a lack of time. Uh, there's a lack of support. Um, there's a lack of teachers. You know, the teacher shortage mm-hmm. uh, has such an impact on the individual, but on and as well as on the schools and the systems as well. You know, the capital projects projects that were mentioned earlier is one you know complexity, but we really do need government to to plan ahead to make sure there's enough school staff to actually fill those schools and meet the needs of the growing populations in Surrey and across the province. Um, the, um, you know, it, it, it adds a stress, uh, there's a stress level to that of, um, you know, of why we come into the, into teaching. We care. Teachers care. They choose the it's profession because they love education. Yeah. They love teaching. They love kids and they're burning out and they're doing it behind closed doors. Cause we don't do that in front of, of in front of kids, right? We're, mm-hmm. They're doing it behind closed doors. Uh, They're making classrooms um, work every single day. Kids are in good hands. Um, But we're hearing the stories of of teachers across the province who the complexities of the classrooms, the the flow out of of COVID is making it really difficult. And even when you decide it's time to get, um, you know, you need a sick day because you're sick, it's flu season. We need time. You need time to recuperate from that, to get well. Um, or to uh, take care of yourself in other ways, there's no, there aren't the teachers to come in and cover the classrooms. So what that means is that someone else in the school is covering those classes. So specialist teachers like school counselors are pulled from their services for kids to cover a vacancy in a classroom. Those students don't get their support that day. And same with teacher librarians. Uh, if they need to cover a classroom, which they're often some of the first ones to be pulled to do that, the libraries are closed. And even if they're open and the books are there, the person that really inspires kids to read and who, you know, as you know, if you've, if you've been a student reading, you know, a, a teacher librarian takes you into the story. They take you into the book. You become yeah. part of the story. And if they're not there to do that, again, students uh, are suffering from that, that loss of service. And we don't open libraries uh, outside of the school time. Uh, yeah. we're not, we're not, uh, we don't provide overtime. We're not similar to other professions. This is the day we have that one time. And when you lose that time, it's gone forever. And so that takes its toll on teachers when they know that the kids that they are, um, they care so much about aren't getting the services that they need, you know, as well as by the people who can't provide the service as well. It takes a toll on them as well. Indeed. We're with Carol Gordon, BC Teachers Federation First Vice President. And I know you're short on time. I I promise to have you uh, out so you make your next meeting. I appreciate your time so very much uh, this morning, Carol. I want to talk a little bit about a very controversial, I don't know why it's very controversial, but it is. And teachers are dealing with pushback and bullhorns and people screaming at them about SOGI 123, sexual orientation, gender identity, uh, and and some just thinking it's something that it absolutely is not. As a parent who has become well-versed in SOGI 123, can you myth bust for us here and explain what SOGI is uh, just in the Coles Notes version? Oh, Coles Notes version. Well, I can tell you that it's not new. 
It was brought in by a previous government uh, with the support of all the partner groups uh, within within the education system. It's currently supported by the current government as well as by all partner groups con- continuing to do that. Uh, SOGI 123 is a resource. Um, and to be clear, there's a lot of fear out there. Part we, we get it because parents aren't in the classrooms. And there's a lot of misinformation that's creating that fear. Um, so it's not about telling kids who or what to be. It's actually the opposite. It's about accepting kids exactly as they are. Um, and it really does bring school policy in line with the changes to the BC Human Rights Code that protects everyone from discrimination on the basis of gender identity and sexual orientation. So uh, when, you know, when kids are in classrooms, we're talking about families in the primary grades. Um, there isn't one, um, um, one way of looking at the world anymore, and kids don't come into this world with just one way of, of experiencing it either. So we have diverse families with two dads and two, two moms. Sometimes it's a grandparent that's raising the child. And so when we talk about parents um, and moms and dads, sometimes it isn't a mom and a dad. And uh, so in the primary grades, it's, it's really quite simple. Um, and as and it's always age appropriate um, as they get older. So it's really reflecting the natural diversity that exists in our school communities and ensuring that kids at, a, at appropriate ages are really able to see themselves and their families represented in the system. You know, I, I think there's a there is misinformation out there, but I also think there's a desire to to hear what's actually happening. I was um, I had to take a cab the other day and the driver at the end of the trip um, spent 15 minutes instead of going and getting out of the fair asked me about what was happening, really wanted to know, wow. could, could hear that the values that he had uh, were aligned with what we were doing in schools, but he wanted to be able to tell his family and friends what was actually happening and was able to, to share. And, you know, he, he understood and had then the information to be able to share out. So I really do encourage parents and the community to go to SojiEducation.org and see what the resources are there for, for parents to understand what's happening. Uh, and I guess maybe I'll take this opportunity. I just really want to say to staff and students um, that we really do see them and the experiences that they're having with the hate that's out there. Um, we care about them and we're really committed to pre- protecting schools um, as safe and in- inclusive spaces. And for community that went through the school system when it wasn't a safe and inclusive space for them, when they didn't see themselves, know that we are really trying to do better and, uh, and do better for kids and do better for families and do better for community. Well said. Carol Gordon, BC Teachers Federation, First Vice President, thank you for your time today. Much appreciated. Thank you so much, Jody. Have a good day. Jody Vance in for Mike Smith, and we're chatting about schools in BC. We had Carol Gordon, the BC Teachers Federation First Vice President, on uh, just prior to the break to talk through sort of a midterm report card for teachers. And we're throwing out the phone lines now to see how you're feeling about the direction of schools in BC. 604 280 Star 9898 is a free call on your cell. Maybe you're a teacher and you're living it right now. I'd love to know how you're feeling at this midterm spot, 2023. We've all been through a lot, but boy, teachers have shouldered extra, a frontline worker indeed. So how are you feeling about the direction of schools in our province? 604-280-9898, star 9898. Carrie in Surrey, you're up first. Welcome. Uh, yes, thank you, and I'm so glad you're having this conversation. Um, first of all, with regards to SOGI, I know it's been politicized like crazy, but I hope everyone remembers the whole point of it is youth 
suicide prevention. Like that's, mm-hmm. it's, it's mm-hmm. in creating an environment where kids have someone to talk to, some to speak to. It is not influencing, it's creating a safe space. So it's so important and critical to uh, all of our kids. And second, I want to be part of the love fest. I am so, I'm in the Surrey school system. We have hiccups right now. The education's top notch. I'm blown away by what our kids are coming out with. Far superior education than I ever did. The teachers are incredible. They've weathered the storm so beautifully and with such dignity, and they deserve all the respect they can get. Great call, Carrie. Thank you so much. I love a little love fest. we got to spread that around. And, and yeah, if we can save kids who feel unseen from doing the unthinkable, then please allow for that in our school system. Educate yourself about SOGI. It's out there. Susan and Kelowna, you're up next. Welcome. Hi. Um, yes, I was just uh, listening to your um, very interesting uh, show about the uh, overcrowding of schools. Yes. And um, I just wanted to share that in my first year of high school, I went to high school in Ottawa, um, we were faced with the same situation and we had to go on a split shift system. And I actually went to school in the afternoon. How was that? So, well, you know, it was good. Um, well, I got to sleep in because it was in the afternoon. <laughs> I know every shift. teenager's dream, right there, Susan. Yes, yes. <laughs> but you know, we were in an area of Ottawa where it was rapid growth. Um, there was all these new subdivisions, and the, our school wasn't finished yet. So mm. we had to do this for a year. And um, you know, and a lot of times uh, the teachers you, you did have some of the same teachers because they would basically work like an eight-hour shift. So, but uh, yeah, so that was something that we did. Yeah, thank you for that. I appreciate you reflecting back on your history there. And and I wish we had the number of teachers that would be able to sustain that. Like going into all of this with a teacher shortage certainly doesn't help. 604-280-9898 is the number to call if you'd like to chime in on the state of schools in BC, or if you want to just share some love for the teachers in your lives, because Lord knows they don't get much of it these days with protests happening with people with bullhorns. 604-280-9898, star 9898 on your cell. Alea in Abbotsford, welcome. Hi, um, so I just, I don't want to rain on anybody's parade and love on all the teachers and stuff. I'm a certified career development practitioner and I'm also certified in this province as a provincial instructor to teach adult education. And I do teach adult education. I teach ESL, I teach literacy, but there's no way that any school district in this province is going to hire me as a certified career development practitioner and a practicing adult educator to teach the My Blueprint program or career prep in any high school in this province because I don't have a bachelor's or a master's. And in one school that I know of in Abbotsford, in a high school, it's a gym teacher teaching it. So then they cut down on gym time because they don't have enough teachers. And it makes me wonder if our resources are going in the right places and why we're not looking at outside talent other than somebody with a master's and a teaching degree. It doesn't make me any less qualified. And, in fact, I have, you know, 11 years of doing this. So, in some cases, I have more experience than some of the teachers that are in our our high schools. But I don't know. You raise a very good point. Yeah. Well, I don't know that we're putting it right. Yeah, I'm an EA as well, and that's all they'll hire me for. 
Interesting. Thank you, Alea. I appreciate that because you do raise a very good point. I mean, it, there were some instances through COVID that there were retired teachers or, you know, if, if that coming back into the into the classrooms in some re- more remote areas of British Columbia where there just simply aren't people with all the credentials that you laid out there, maybe some practical experience should come into play in terms of uh, perhaps certifying, red sealing, if you will, uh, those who have the skill set. Maybe it's not about going through uh, a long and, and arduous process to become accredited, to become a teacher. That being said, I do have a very good friend who just went through all that as a, as a mature student, if you will, and uh, she did fabulously well. It went by quite, it was very intense, but she's doing a great job and now she's a full-time teacher. So there's shout out to Chelsea Miller right there. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.